You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Mancy, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and in Industrial Equipment News, and we each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and the implications that they have on the industry moving forward. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Jeff, how are you doing this week? Good, man. We finally have some temperatures above freezing. So as the snow melts, my attitude gets even kind of proportionately better, I think. <laughs> that's right. And now we get to talk about how everything's so messy. Anna, yeah. how are you doing? Yeah, that snow is dirty. Yeah. Yes, it is uh, frequent clothing changes at our house. The little ones. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, so let's jump into the top story this week. All right. Uh, the fifth most popular story on our sites a monkey plays video games with Neuralink's brain interface. In March 2017, Elon Musk announced a new venture, Neuralink, a startup developing a brain-machine interface that will connect human brains to computers. The tech starts with a puck or microchip that threads tiny electrodes into your brain, and the electrodes are implanted near neurons in your brain. It's not a little, a little redundant there. Uh, The technology could change the lives of patients with brain or spinal injuries, but Musk believes the company could eventually achieve human or artificial intelligence symbiosis. Musk recently stated that the monkey with the implant, that a monkey with an implant is currently playing video games with its mind. Next, the team will attempt to get another monkey to play mind pong with this video game playing monkey. The tech could eventually lead to digital telepathy and a form of immortality or, quote, a saved state of your mind. Anna, your thoughts on the story? (laughs) (laughs) Oof. Woof. This is a big one. Uh, I, you know, I like the medical application discussion here, but I wish that Elon Musk would stop talking about this long-term potential. Mm -hmm. I guess... I don't know. He so he contends that people are already a form of cyborg mm-hmm. <laughs> with this digital layer that exists because we're tethered to our devices and uh, f- fair enough, but it's right. that there's like a, a a gap there, you know. This idea of a sort of casual digital telepathy is so alarming to me just from a personal standpoint um because there's millions of us out there that wouldn't want anything to do with that, but I think like the applications and development for brain implants that offer ways for patients with severe paralysis to communicate um, are kind of likened to taking it a step further from what's already being used to treat diseases like Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So if you know anyone who's had the deep brain stimulation as a treatment for Parkinson's, as I have, it's a pretty time-consuming and painful procedure. It's got several steps. It takes a few months um, to complete and then test. and, um, And it can really make a huge difference but it's for real you know Mm -hmm. so this idea of casually getting a brain implant for reasons of digital telepathy to me kind of undercuts the seriousness of that and almost fuels detractors which there may be a lot of those according to a 2019 survey published in forbes um 
14% of the people polled said that they were strongly in favor of implantable technology. And the biggest reasons that they weren't related to privacy and, of course, safety. So I think talking about it in that way, like the long-term placing your brain into another vessel thing, you know, probably gets a lot of press, but it also generates a lot of concerns from the general populace. And I guess I'm not sure, you know, some of the stuff that Elon says about Neuralink's potential is really the best, like, commercial or marketing pitch for what could have the most benefit, and that's the medical applications. Right. I mean, as uh, one reader who identifies as robot man, NYG, end times are near. <laughs> Jeff, your thoughts on the medical applications and, you know, immortality. I mean, first of all, how many early 1990s sci-fi movies did Musk borrow from to come up with this? I mean, I'm thinking it's like Johnny Mnemonic, Total Recall. There's a, there's a handful of them that yeah. uh, seem to have. Uh, Johnny Mnemonic is solid. So, and I'm with, you know, getting back getting back to the, to the root of this. I mean, what Anna was talking about from the medical side, that is exciting. Mm-hmm. But I would agree with her that Musk sort of going this route and talking about monkeys playing ping pong or playing pong to, to generate interest does send the wrong message. We talk a lot about AI in terms of its potential applications within manufacturing to help improve processes, to help cut costs and implementing this type of technology from an, an operational perspective in helping the inter- whole enterprise work better in not tasking humans so many times to try things out, see how it did, look at the data, using artificial intelligence to streamline a lot of these processes. That's where a lot of this technology, I think, has greater benefit. When you look at there, when you look at the medical side of things, and when you start getting into telepathy and things like this, it makes you wonder, I mean, is this the type of technology you have to sort of like put a cap on? Mm-hmm. Um, not to pose like, bigger <laughs> humanity focused issues. But I mean, if we're starting to be able to communicate without actually interacting, that's not really preserving a human experience anymore. That's, right. that's going kind of down some gray areas there. Well, and what's interesting is like in 2015, he was part, uh, Elon Musk was part of this group with like Stephen Hawking with the future Institute who actually like signed this document saying like AI needs to be studied. So it's used for like the good of man. Oh, he um, still does that. He still makes comments all, all the time publicly about how AI cannot proceed like unchecked. Mm-hmm. So this, I think, is kind of weird coming from him, but I don't know. Well, it's so for me, I think that the reason the marketing slant of, you know, that we're already cyborgs doesn't work is because it hits too close to home for many people. Um, you know, essentially, it would be the same connection that we currently have with our phones, but they're just shooting for a higher bandwidth you know, 10,000 time faster uh, connection. And uh, yeah, I know it's terrifying, but like I just Google Google a lot. Um, the other thing that I was curious about is on immortality or this saved state. I yeah, let's just get onto the light, the light topic of immortality. Right yeah. Away. So on the light topic of immortality, Anna, uh, is a pipe partner required to stay with the consciousness after it leaves the vessel? So, you know, thoughts. Like, are you putting this in your prenuptial agreement? I mean, it's got to be a prenup thing. Like, I'm marrying your body, not your mind. (laughs) Oh, actually, you got to watch the wording on that one. I wouldn't. Wow. I wouldn't put that in, no. Thoughts and opinions expressed by David Manti. (laughs) That. Necessarily. Sometimes, just the random ones. I don't mean them. No. Mm. uh, So, but yeah, I I think it just, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a note on the greater implications with this. And, uh. So what do you guys think? 
Um, have you watched um, Altered Carbon on Netflix? I haven't yet, no. Okay, well, it kind of goes down this route with like preserving memories and putting it into a new vessel, and it doesn't go well. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, human beings are human beings, and yeah. we do kind of, yeah, I don't think that's a good call. Well, we ran another story. I can't remember exactly what it was, where they were going to save your online social media footprint to create essentially a bot version of you so that way people can converse with it. It's like straight out of that yeah. Black Mirror episode. Um uh, I know that we got to wrap this segment up, but uh, there were two things that I wanted to add. Uh, for the animal rights activists out there, Musk insists it's not an unhappy monkey. And the other piece of powerful tech in this really is the surgical robot that they actually call a sewing machine for brain implants. Because that, that could be the real powerful piece of technology that um, kind of takes the human element out of it completely. They're talking about yeah. not requiring a neurosurgeon at all eventually with what they're working on. And one day, Neuralink could be an elective procedure on bar with like LASIK surgery. On bar, on par. Yeah, we'll save that for another day. Stop, don't call <laughs> it a sewing machine also. Like we need to, we need to rewrite the ship here on this marketing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next story. New, worship, new warships pull onto beaches. The U.S. Navy is changing, and the light amphibious warship is part of the redesign. The new warships, <clears throat> the new warships are between 200 and 400 feet long, and are part of the new U.S. Marine Corps Littoral Regiment, which will include trips, troops with ship-killing missile op- missiles operating in smaller units from the islands around the Western Pacific. The vessels deployed for the first time in Hawaii and. They can pull onto beaches, and they only cost only cost one hundred to one hundred and thirty million dollars. Uh, Anna, your thoughts on the story? Yeah, I should probably kick this off because I know Jeff, you served in the military, but I have played a lot of Battleship in my day, so I probably have some really good insights here. Exactly. Um, no, I. I enjoyed the cost comparisons um, in the article because they said that a traditional destroyer costs a hundred sorry 1.5 billion dollars mm-hmm. so for these warships to budget out at just a just a hundred to 130 million a pop sounds good yeah um, I mean no it's a sizable spend but to the point made in the article it kind of thins the risk of losing a single vessel when the cost is spread out a bit and the Navy wants about 30 of these it says yeah Um and it's unclear how many stay in Hawaii. I think Hawaii is kind of where this is happening now. But um, I read in the Honolulu Star Advisor that the Marine Corps might have regiments for this in Guam and Japan as fast-moving counterweights to China's growing Navy fleet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the high end, 30 ships would be about $3.9 billion. And the U.S. Naval Institute News says that the Navy is working – from about 10 to 11 different industry groups working down to one that'll start building the first warships in late fiscal 2022. Uh, Jeff, your thought on the uh, change yeah, of strategy. I think it's interesting because I think what you're seeing is a real shift in military tactics here a little bit. When you look at the hotspots, we were looking at the Middle East. There, when you look at urban warfare and the way they've adjusted the military vehicle design and the weaponry that's coming out, it's designed for close quarters small arms, um, smaller squads, smaller groups of soldiers moving in. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of a similar approach, taking more of a squad approach as opposed to a big military um, um, vessel. So this is going to be allow them to move more quickly, get people where they need to, fire from further distances away. And I think when you look overall at sort of the geopolitical 
dynamic in place right now. There's concerns, obviously, in North Korea. There's concerns, as Anna was just saying, about China. So it kind of sets up, if you looked at World War II, you know, when, when, when military action needed to be taken, it was sort of island to island, which mm-hmm. would then facilitate the need for these types of vehicles to be able to move, or these types of vessels to, to move more quickly and get the job done. Well, when you talk about the changing size, it's interesting because they made a specific point to talk about how size doesn't matter anymore. As Lieutenant General Eric Smith, head of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command, said, if I can sink one of your $1.5 billion warships with a $1.5 million missile, I am a threat. And they want 30 of these, but it's going to be a while. As Major General Tracy King, Director of Expedientiary Warfare and the Chief of Naval Operations Staff, says, we're going to build one, get that out there, and start playing with it. So, not in any hurry. Yeah, I don't know if I'd believe that or not, though. No? <laughs> Very good. I was trying to figure out exactly who the manufacturer was for these, but it sounds like they're still trying to figure that out. All right, on to the next story. Gunpowder plant owner denied early release. In, 20, uh, in 2010, two workers were killed during an explosion at Black Mag in New Hampshire. The plant manufactured a black powder substitute for muzzle-loading rifles. Company company owner Craig Sanborn was prosecuted for ignoring safety measures and improperly training his staff. He was convicted of two counts of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in state prison. After serving three-fourths of his 120-month sentence, Sanborn could be available to suspend the rest of the sentence, but he was denied. While Sanborn has been a, quote, model inmate and a mentor to others during his incarceration, he still faces 28 months in federal prison for wire fraud. Jeff, your thoughts on this story? You know, I looked into the background of the original incident, mm-hmm. um, and there's just so many red flags that, that would make it very difficult to really have a lot of compassion for mm-hmm. this individual. First of all, the two people that were killed were working there for like a week or less. Yeah. And they were hand they were loading this black powder by hand into the manufacturing equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even know anything about the process. And to me, that sends off a number of alarms. So the fact that he was not <laughs> awarded early release makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's been 11 years, two individuals passed. Um, it's really kind of mind-blowing, too. And you look into just the chemistry of this black powder, highly explosive. I mean, when you look at the powder that's used now in modern firearms, it's really not an issue. It's kind of like, I don't know, you take the same precautions you would with something like flour or sugar, okay? This is three times more explosive when exposed to an accelerant than that type of powder that's used in a traditional firearm now. Mm -hmm. So just those things alone doesn't leave a lot of room for wanting to do this individual any favors. Yeah, it definitely doesn't sound like uh, safety was a priority, right, Anna? Yeah, I mean, to Jeff's point, I, he was described as a quote model inmate these days. But when he was sentenced in 2013, it took a jury only three hours to find him guilty. Mm. And the prosecutor, the prosecutor painted a picture of a negligent company owner who was motivated by greed. Um, you know, it was on his watch that the two workers died, and a third was injured um, when the explosion erupted, and. As Jeff said, they were hand-feeding um, the product into that processing equipment. There was no guards, no barriers. He didn't have PPE for them even. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when OSHA levied its fines on his business, they cited Black Meg LLC with four egregious willful, 12 willful, 36 serious, and two other than serious violations. And the penalties totaled over $1.2 million. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't his first incident. Um, he was warned previous to this incident when another worker was seriously injured and he still failed to implement protections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would think that that's something as a, a plant operator, a plant owner would keep you up at night for the rest of your life. Yeah. And this guy just continued business as usual. Um, one of the witnesses in his trial said that he worked there for just six days before he quit over safety concerns. And the deadly explosion actually occurred just nine days later. Oh my so, goodness. Yeah. So it's really hard to see past that and mm-hmm. consider this request for a commuted sentence as being deserved. It clearly isn't. Well, and even after his commuted sentence, He's still on the hook for wire fraud from another ammunitions or a munitions plant that Sanborn owned in Brownville, Maine. Uh, he called it was called X Ring Industries, which also manufactured muzzle loading ammunition. He received about three hundred thousand dollars in community development block grant money to help build the plant and create jobs. However, Sanborn received the money by falsifying invoices for equipment and services that he never received. So I just it's hard to think that he's not just a bad actor. And it's very unfortunate that we see these some these stories from time to time in the industry, especially when they're, I mean, not literally playing with fire, but the closest you can get to it. Mm-hmm. All right. Second most popular story of the week. Did Elon Musk lose $15 billion with a single tweet? Musk is back. Number two this week. According to Bloomberg, A tweet from Elon Musk may have caused Tesla's stock to drop 8.6%. It's similar to an incident last May when Musk tweeted that he thought Tesla's own stock price was too high and shares tumbled 12% in 30 minutes. In this case, the biggest loser in Tesla's valuation dip was actually Musk, who owns more than 240 million shares. He also, sadly, lost his place as the richest man in the world. It's so sad. <laughs> Man. Oh, I thought about that just constantly since then, how sad it is. <laughs> it's also important to note that he tweeted that Bitcoin's valuation seemed high and it then fell 17%. It's important to note that Tesla recently bought $1.5 billion in Bitcoin and plans to accept it to buy its automobiles. So, Jeff, Elon Musk just getting squirrely again? I think he just enjoys being this puppeteer, you know, just oh, yeah. dance, dance for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, for the like, you know, dozen people out there who actually understand the volatility of the Bitcoin market, mm-hmm. maybe there's there's more to this. But to me, it just seems like he takes this opportunity to manipulate people or not. That, that sounds harsh. The world. I mean, he's just, he's, mani- he's manipulating their responses is what he's doing. He's oh, not yeah. forcing anybody to do anything, but he's he's putting stuff out there. And just seeing how they react to it yeah. and, and seeing what happens in, in terms of, and in this case, Bitcoin value went down, Tesla stock went down. But there's also like this part of me, you know, thinking of the whole evil genius type of, of dynamic, like, is he doing this to, on, on purpose? Mm-hmm. Drive the prices down, scoop up some more for himself at a lower rate or something like that? I mean, he already owns the most Tesla stock of any, I think it's like 20 or 21% of the company stock or whatever he owns right now. So, but if the company is doing well, it's forecasting to do even better. Maybe this is, is a thought. I mean, that'd be 
little off out of character maybe for him, but I mean, who knows? I think, I think it's a hobby. I think that he is fascinated by the sheer ludicrous nature that appears at this intersection of gross corporate wealth, fame culture and market manipulation. So it's like a fork, (laughs) but I I think he just sits back and he's like, watch this. I'm going to make a multi-million dollar shift in the market with one tweet. And I think he, I think he finds that generally, you know, of interest. I mean, you run out of things to find interesting when you're only the second richest man in the world. Yeah, poor guy. And I, uh, your thoughts on this? I don't know. I mean, I give him a lot of credit for, uh, he runs a lot of different companies in, he's <clears throat> holds executive roles in, in, um, a lot of different companies. He's founded a lot of companies. He's like, a busy guy. He's talked in the past about how little sleep he gets at night. So sometimes when this stuff happens, I think like, is he just like up really late and hallucinating or is he, you know, I mean, I don't know that it's always so premeditated as people suggest that maybe he just sort of like offhand kind of does something that he maybe wouldn't have done in the light of day. But anyway, to me, there's a difference between him making a direct comment about Tesla Mm-hmm. And its stock price, as he did earlier in 2020, or his intention to take it private, as he did in 2018. Like, there's an argument to be made there that it's that's market manipulation. But I don't mm. know. I mean, I'm not a securities lawyer. I don't. Are you guys? No. Um, no, no. I've got one credit left. <laughs> <laughs> you quit. Yeah. You quit to raise your family with one credit left. Yeah, that's right. That's I was David's like, you know what? Story. Manufacturing podcast instead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think if he makes a comment on Bitcoin's valuation, I'm not sure we can apply the same assessment. I mean, Bitcoin is a currency. And as Jeff said, it it happens to be very volatile. So maybe the bigger story is just that, that that Bitcoin and other cryptos continue to be very volatile. And this one was so much so that a tweet that says what almost everyone else in the world is thinking, that they may be overvalued right now, just took Tesla's value down with it because Tesla now owns a lot of Bitcoin. But conversely, if you look at Monday in a vacuum, Bitcoin did slide 17%, as the article states. But what it doesn't say is that Bitcoin actually recovered it that day and mm-hmm. Tesla didn't. So here, you know, here I am talking about crypto and volatility, but who wobbled the most? Tesla. Right. <laughs> and we've talked in the past about whether Tesla is overvalued. And I think this situation maybe spoke a bit to that. I mean, it made me question whether or not, you know, tweets, comments, and posts on social media should really be capable of causing such market disruption. Uh, I mean, I joke about it, but sometimes I'm just jump, jumping on there to get an update on Mike Hockett's chickens. Um, well, I mean, they shouldn't, right? I, yeah. But if, if you're a student of this medium, and he definitely, I think, qualifies as a student or a teacher or whatever you want to say in terms of knowing how to use it to his gain. I mean, he, he's he's utilizing it to its its full potential because there are people who overreact. That's almost what a lot of social media is. It's, 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 it's fueled by yeah. those overreactions. It's outranged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I think what's getting unique is, is how many more people now involved in social media are also making decisions that affect bigger picture things like oh, stock yeah. prices. I mean, that's, that's no, sort of the evolution there. That was the other point I wanted to bring up was the larger dis- discussion over company owners, owners and let's just say, other leaders or managers uh, using social media and uh, how, you know, people that 
let's say, run pillow companies and are responsible for 1,500 employees in Minnesota can all of a sudden put the livelihoods of 1,500 people and their families at risk just because they're getting real hot with the Twitter. Yeah. Very frustrating. Um, the last story. Most popular this week. No surprise about it. Why a plane's engine exploded over Denver. Last Saturday, a Boeing 777 operated by United Airlines was headed to Hawaii and it didn't make it. It made an emergency landing in Denver after a, Pratt and Whitney, <clears throat> after a Pratt & Whitney engine blew apart. The wreckage landed in neighborhoods and even athletic fields in the area. Passengers captured incredible video of the engine still on fire. The investigation is now focusing on the fan blade possibly weakened by wear and tear. The fan blades showed signs of metal fatigue or hairline cracks from stress <clears throat> and additional wear and tear. Some of the questions that need to be answered now are how long fan blades last and are they inspected enough or frequently enough? On Tuesday, the FAA grounded all planes with the type of engine with this specific type of engine until they can be inspected for stress cracks. Anna, your thoughts on Boeing's new crisis. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people who even moderately follow the aviation industry when they saw this, the first thing they were thinking is, Oh my God, how, how did this conclude? Which fortunately things turned out okay in landing that plane. But secondly, like, oh, another Boeing problem, mm -hmm. you know? And like this company has endured punch after punch the past couple of years with two Max jets crashing between late 2018 and early 2019. The subsequent grounding of those planes until very recently with Boeing ultimately admitting that they knew about some of those problems before the crashes then the pandemic decimates the travel industry. Uh -huh. You know, we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, but just the massive impact Boeing's recent experiences have had on its workforce. And for a company that's coming off a year of record losses, any more bad press is just like the last thing that Boeing needs. And unfortunately, since their name is on that plane, even though this is potentially a problem with the manufacturing of the Pratt & Whitney engine, or perhaps the way it was maintained, mm -hmm. um, Boeing is going to bear some of the impact from a brand standpoint. And especially too, now that all of the similar cases from the past few years of Boeing planes with Pratt and Whitney engines falling apart are, are being like republicized. Mm -hmm. And there were a handful of events where the same situation seems to have occurred where the engine housing broke off or the fan blades had cracked. So uh, I just, unfortunately for Boeing, um, this is not going to help it's like piling on. Well, uh, it says Boeing on the plane, but uh, what about the name on the ticket, Jeff? Uh, the other company is impacted by this. Yeah, I mean, and you know, just backtracking just a minute, we were just talking about artificial intelligence and potential applications. You know, when we look at a situation like this in aircraft safety and aircraft maintenance and preventative maintenance, this is another area where this could be applied potentially in a way that's less concerning and could actually do a tremendous amount of good. Mm -hmm. But Aside from that, you know, Anna was talking about Boeing, but United, mm -hmm. you know, we've done stories in the past where people are obviously sidestepping airline travel right now. Last fall, you know, there was a $2.2 trillion relief plan put in place to help protect airline payrolls. During that time, United was also furloughing like 13,000 employees. So the air travel sector is also under attack here. And we've done stories too on the folks in, uh, in Northern Indiana, the, the airstreams of the world and some of those other Winnebago builders. People are finding ways to travel without using an airplane right now. Oh yeah. These types of stories push them even further potentially in that direction. So although United is the one bearing the brunt and having to ground planes, 
really the airline sector, airline travel sector overall is just, it's just another shot in the stomach um, in terms of how they're hoping 2021 can be part of a rebuilding, but this is going to slow them down as well. Yeah, analysts have said that uh, Raytheon, uh, Pratt & Whitney's parent company, will likely take a bigger hit from this one than Boeing. But my point was that you're not seeing Pratt & Whitney in the headlines or in the ticker. You're seeing Boeing. Boeing still has a lot of exposure in this as well as the cowling that's separated from the engine. That is a Boeing design. Uh, You talk about United Airlines. They had to ground 24 planes with this PW4000 engine and United is the only U.S. airline with this engine in its fleet. And I mean, I guess to your point about uh, travel being down, I guess luckily it being down 60% last year, I mean, maybe they won't take such a big hit by grounding so many planes. But <clears throat> one of the most interesting things that I found was that before these planes can fly again, operators are going to have to conduct what they call a thermal acoustic image inspection of the large titanium fan blades at front of each engine. The technology can detect cracks on the interior surfaces of the hollow blades that can't be seen by the naked eye. Uh, Jeff, I also really found your point about AI interesting in this because we see how uh, maybe not AI yet, but augmented reality is being used in plants where you have the augmented reality glasses and you can look at parts that have have embedded sensors and stuff and it kind of, you know, shows um, kind of status updates on critical equipment. I think that could be a really cool application here. Yeah, I mean, AI, augmented artificial intelligence, however you want to look at augmented reality, um, it can all be used for a lot of different things. The first place that grabs a lot of headlines are some of the things Musk was talking about or gaming or or whatever else for entertainment purposes. But yeah, there's some real world applications here that can have a deep impact. I think with this story too, the other thing, we've been talking a ton about supply chain, especially during the pandemic. You can see how it all comes together here. Mm -hmm. A supplier to a manufacturer to a service provider, and they're all impacted by a quality issue. Well, and I mean, Anna, at least at the end of the day, there's, you know, like 250 people on board. I mean, at least everybody may home safe, traumatized, but safe. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, you know, if you look at um, U S air safety, I mean, there hasn't been a commercial plane crash in the U S in I think like 12 years or something. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, but it's weird, like to Jeff's point about the travel industry and how much this can impact that, you know, you read a story like this, plus all of the ensuing coverage where they really take a granular look at what's going on with maintenance practices. Um, you know, that last issue with the Max plane where Boeing was basically busted for knowing more than they said before any of this stuff happened. Um, it really kind of turns you away from the idea of travel, even though to to you know, it's been very, very safe um, for the last decade plus um, to fly in an airplane. And still you see the stuff and you're like, eee. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to, even if you can't within the, the scope of the situation, it's, it's just your mind can wrap around getting out of a car when you're in the plane. I mean, you're, you're there. We had one, we had one reader that was, uh, that would chime off frequently regarding the 737 MAX uh, issue saying that when he travels, he will never get on that plane. I mean, we travel a lot. Do you guys ever pay attention as to what plane we're getting on? No. I mean, the only time I pay attention is like when they take us out and all of a sudden you're like walking up the stairs, the like, you know, rickety wooden stairs to the prop plane and somewhere in Cincinnati. And you're like, <laughs> no, I mean, this is going to take off. Right. I mean, this was just like a comedic ad in major league. Yeah. It's going to actually, 
It'll land, right? No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's uh, Anna, do you ever pay attention to, you know, what we're flying on? No, I think I did when, um, like, the first Max plane crashed and mm-hmm. they didn't know why. Um, and then, like, remember after the second one crashed, it took them a little while to ground those planes. Yeah. So around that time, I think I was looking for that. Uh, but but I, I am with you, like, prior to that, like, are you really looking at what engine your plane has or what, you know, who manufactured it and when, and uh, uh, no. Yeah. But but the general unease I think does, does carry over. And I don't know, maybe it's making people second guess like their travel right now, but there's a lot of reasons to do that as well. No, I definitely think so. And I mean, like you guys mentioned, the uh, pandemic is a big part of that. You know, a lot of people buying teardrop trailers right now and just taking, uh, taking to the road. Um, but I guess my mentality is always like, once I'm in that airport, it's like, all right, here we go. I'm going to trust you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Too late now. Right. And my, my chief concern is please don't lose my bag. I know that's such a cliche, but it's happened so many times to me that, you know, it's hard to survive Anaheim without a tire. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on down there? Ah, I have this one suit that I wore on the plane and it's day three. Yeah. And these are flip flops and I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, it's a choice. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to our next segment, uh, in case you missed it, a segment about stories that, you know, have a big impact on the industry, but weren't necessarily as popular on the sites. Um, my, in case you missed it this week was how USPS selected Oshkosh defense for greener trucks. And it's not just because it's a Wisconsin company, although bias. The U.S. Post Office picked Oshkosh Defense to build the next-generation mail delivery vehicle. The order calls for up to 165,000 vehicles that will be assembled at U.S. manufacturing facilities, and the company is going to get $482 million up front for retooling and factory updates. That is a, is a healthy check. Mail delivery trucks haven't been updated in 30 years, which is just remarkable and sad. The new vehicles, some electric, some gas, will have more room for packages, as that's what they're mostly bringing door-to-door, and modern safety standards like cameras, collision avoidance systems, and this new thing called airbags. Ooh. I mean... Are they going to give them a door, too? What's that? Are they going to give them a door? Uh, Maybe. You know, just like when I was reading some of the safety features they're adding, I'm like, I mean, there's a belt in there, right? (laughs) Um. So mail, yeah, once again, mail delivery trucks haven't been updated in 30 years. It's a long time coming, even if they're just eventually going to paint them black and put that Amazon smile on them in a little bit anyways. Oh, but um, I I just feel so bad when I see my mail carrier now because of Amazon Mm -hmm. and how much harder that job has become. I mean, he's just like lugging around just a million packages constantly down the block. It just looks like these, these poor letter carriers they they need something nice in their lives well in a short time Mm -hmm. they'll get a new truck they're on the same refurbishment schedule as air force one right 30 years (laughs) every 30 years yeah Uh, i just that was uh remarkable to me i mean uh and also about to be a lot of old delivery trucks up for sale i say we get one for ien for the video crew for the video crew too one for the video crew we're going to travel separately and uh (laughs) And and one for editorial, the IEN news mail truck. 
All right. On location, don't hit us because, my God, this thing is a death trap. Uh Jeff, you're big uh, in case you missed it this week. Uh, I must be enamored with Russia for some reason. You know, last week I was talking about the the Kalashnikov gun and the the 50 cal body armor that was kind of bogus. Mm-hmm. But the two things that uh, caught my eye, uh, both related to Russia, different stories but sort of connected. Um, one with the top government officials, top U.S. officials, really identifying, zeroing in on Russia as the one behind that solar winds and, and fire eye attack late last year, the cyber mm-hmm. attack. Got in, got a bunch of personal data on both private and public entities throughout the U.S. So it's really escalating there a little bit. Before it was like, yeah, we think it's rumored. They're saying no, it was it was these guys. We mm-hmm. definitely know it was it was um, bad actors coming from the from Russia. Um, and the other sort of connected to that was another one where uh, a worker in Sweden, basically a Swedish national, worked at Volvo, worked at another big truck maker there was actually selling proprietary information to Russian officials as well, working as sort of like a corporate spy and and passing on information. What's interesting there is obviously it wasn't military necessarily information. It was probably, I mean, there was probably some things that could be turned into military applications, but more transportation focused. Um, But also the the latest payment that he was caught receiving was like just over $3,000. So, I mean, what's the... Yeah, like what's... What's the pay scale for for corporate spies these days? That oh. seems lower. Yeah, I, I guess I never thought. What's my you know entry point to corporate espionage? It's yeah. higher than three. Yeah, it, like that the, seems low. The risk reward seems a little bit off here. So, um, especially I, when you like approach treason, <laughs> just like what well, are you? That, I mean, for? this this guy is in huge trouble here, obviously for for passing this stuff along. But I, to me, it just sort of reiterated a lot of the things that were going on at the end of the Trump administration or throughout the Trump administration, to be honest. And now some things that President Biden is going to have to deal with as well in terms of Russia's impact, in terms of hacking into not just before it was things that were influencing things on a social level, but now we're, we're talking about proprietary corporate information here. This is your Volvo, obviously a huge manufacturer. So if they're sort of broadening their horizons and getting into other areas, it reinforces some of the things we've talked about in previous issues. You know, we talked about the wastewater plant that came under cyber attack and mm-hmm. some other things as well. So um, just another thing for manufacturers to be concerned about from a cyber perspective. Well, and uh, without getting too deep into it, like Russia does have a history of using hacking to create insecurity and distrust and fear among a population before, uh, you know, it makes a bigger push or bigger play against the nation. Uh, so smile about that later. Uh, Anna, you're in case you missed it this week. <laughs> Thanks for setting the table. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, Anna, just, in other news, yeah. Russia's cold. It's cold here, but it's getting warmer. How's it back there? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's nice in here. I have a door. I can close it. Uh, so the the story I picked for in case you missed it, and this is this is a little lighter, guys. I hope you don't mind. In fact, I may have Please. wasted my pick this week, but this story kind of made me laugh. Um it got my attention because it's about this case against um, some milk cooperatives that were working together, um, allegedly to uh, on on this scheme, and then, then they had to settle with um, with consumers and buyers for a two hundred twenty million dollars. But the story got my attention because it pertains to butter and cheese, and I'm from Wisconsin, and you know butter and cheese enough said. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. 
So here a settlement was announced after a lawsuit accused these handful of producers of conspiring on a scheme to reduce milk output and obviously thus increase prices. But there was no decision made by the court um, and the groups involved denied the allegations, but they did agree to a settlement of $220 million. So here's the best part. If you purchase butter or cheese from any of these producers or their subsidiaries, you are entitled to submit for reimbursement. So you just have to look back in your records from December 6, 2008 to July 31st, 2013 and produce a receipt to get your hands on a piece of that $220 million minus knew, attorney fees. So I knew there was a reason I was supposed to hold on to those, to those receipts. Right. You know what? She says that I got to lose the receipts to keep after five years. This was our <laughs> opportunity. We're taking a huge butter loss here, hon. <laughs> Yeah, go into your files, of, go to the B section for butter, um, pull out your <laughs> butter receipts from 2008. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I just, so anyway, hopefully a few commercial customers will get a piece of that because no consumer has that receipt. No. Well, and uh, the reason I kind of laughed about this was because, you know, last week we're talking syrup mafia, mm-hmm. maybe two weeks ago, this week, milk mafia. Milk mafia. Yep. My goodness. Mm-hmm. What are they coming after next? <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I thought tiny candies, but I'm not sure which one. Uh, Jeff, any thoughts on uh, price fixing in general? I know that we saw it. Um, well, I mean, did we just see it with chickens, right? In the uh, Pilgrim's Pride story? Yeah. Yeah. Tuna, and, uh, too. There's yeah, been I was going to say, there's been a lot of like the seafood stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, was it Starkist? I think it really hit hard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, with Bumblebee. That. Oh, Bumblebee. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, with, with the milk stuff, I mean, that's always been a big issue. We've been closer to it here mm-hmm. um, in Wisconsin, but, um, you know, milk dumping and things like that is not uncommon in terms of trying to control and keep the prices up. So this is, this is interesting in terms of their tactic and, um, sort of the end result, obviously. Yeah. I don't, uh, maybe if it was ice cream, I would have the receipts or something, but I don't think you I'll, keep your I'll, ice cream receipts, think, but no, uh, no, <laughs> no butter and, uh, and, yeah. and cheese. I actually put the ice cream on a separate receipt that I can throw away because I've eaten it in the car before I even get it home. You accidentally <laughs> eat the receipt too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's more of a napkin, sort of, but uh, <laughs> um, but for those rare few that do have the receipts available, we do have the address for the claim forms on our website. So I'll just uh, make sure that we have that one on our our big server, so that way it can uh, it can handle the influx of traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that should wrap it up for in case you missed it this week. Uh, bringing us to final thoughts, um, Jeff, your final thoughts this week. Um, I think these were some really interesting stories. I think what we're seeing, it's, it's kind of nice, actually. We're out of the election cycle of news. We're right. actually getting some really good stuff to talk about here and, and pertinent as well. I mean, I think there are parts of all these stories that are kind of out there a little bit, but there's, there's also a real dynamic connection to current issues within the U.S. industrial sector. I think looking forward, it's going to be interesting to see how some of the things the Biden administration is going to do. They've already talked about more supply chain visibility and, and potentially that helping some reshoring efforts. So it'll be interesting to see how some of those initiatives might impact some of the stuff we uh, we talk about going forward. Yeah, just advancing or actually kind of cutting our reliance on foreign suppliers, particularly for PPE and stuff that we need in case of an emergency. Um, Anna, final thoughts? Um, I think my only final thought is like we've had a run of pretty egregious safety stories the last two, three weeks. Um, how about take a break from doing terrible stuff and, and 
like let's let's not have one next week. That's my hope. This will be this will be the point. They will have heard your statement and say, you know what? It is time to do the right thing. That's right. Get a mask on that person. Yep. Um. Yeah. No. I. You know. I wanted to mention that during the story, but it's like. I mean, how long have we been covered? Ever since we started covering the industry, it's always been a thing. People are always going to cut corners. Not everyone. There are definitely, I think, the people that are doing it right are not making it news. You know, the people that are investing in technology, the maintenance to keep Mm -hmm. these facilities safe, aren't making the headlines. And uh, there's plenty of them out there. But yeah, if there'd be less on the other side, that'd be great. I know. It's too bad. And, you know, like, nobody likes to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it, but... I feel like if we don't, you know, it gets, it shouldn't get brushed under the rug. We have to bring the, these kind of stories to light and continue to reinforce this, that this is not right. Um, The consequences can be catastrophic. Like this continues to be a problem in manufacturing, even in modern day times when we have all the resources at our disposal to make sure that it doesn't, it still does. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cliche, but safety is a culture thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been there. We talked about that before. When you go into some of these places, you can tell. Yeah. Um, all right. Note, do better. Unless you're already doing great, but still improve. Then do the same. Yeah. Or, yeah, or th- th- better. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, actually, that would be kind of interesting if we could get people to submit, like, the longest they've gone with zero incidents at the plant, you know, just uh, to see some of the high performers out there. Um, my final thought, Anna's favorite, housekeeping. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. It'll really help us out a lot. And to email the podcast, you can reach us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, if you get a chance, please rate and review us. Uh, It really helps us for other people looking uh, to find a new podcast to listen to. But only review us if you like it. Oh, yeah. No, I've already. Just keep moving. I've already like chastised a friend. He's like, I give you a solid four star review. I'm like, well, take it down. <laughs> Make it five. You're no friend. No. Send all negative comments to David at IEN.com. Right? <laughs> he can take it. Yeah. yeah. Put email the podcast dash easy in the subject line. <laughs> well, very good. Um, well, for Anna and Jeff, I'm David Manti, and this has been Today in Manufacturing Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.